0: Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy. As I look back and have a listen to some of the highlights from previous shows throughout the year. In this episode, the 2020 Booker Prize winner Douglas Stewart, Tammy Hoof, Jonathan Whitelaw, Catherine Simpson, Paul Lyons and Laura Marley all talk about books they would recommend to anyone. Douglas, we're on to the third question. And it's a book that you'd recommend to anyone. And again, I think like a lot of people, it's a difficult one because how do you just recommend one book? We touched on the fact that you're a, you're obviously a big fan of Scottish fiction and some of the books that you'd mentioned, I'm guessing meant a lot to you or mean a lot to you in terms of the Scottish fiction. You'd mentioned Agnes Owens. You'd talked about uh, Morven Collar, Al- Alan Warner, and also
1: Young Adam by Alexander Trockey. Yeah, those, I mean, these three books, I, anytime anyone asks me to recommend a book, I'm always sort of pimping. Scottish books if I can, and so... <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> that's right. I know, I know, I do my best, honestly, I'm, I'm trying. Uh, and I want to just say again, like, these are three books, and I could choose 100 books if you'd let me. Uh, and I realise these are not contemporary books, but I choose them because they had a big influence on me as a young man. You know, Agnes Owens, I think, is one of the most tremendous writers of Scottish fiction, not only because she's truly a working-class writer, but because she's writing about these hard places from a mother's perspective. I think she was a mother of seven, and she lost one of her sons. To gang violence, I believe. Uh, but when she writes, Gentlemen of the West for me, when she writes about Mac going from the pub to the unemployment office with, and seeing his cronies and then his mother's flat, she does it with such a tenderness that I just love that book. Uh Morvan Caller for me was, I think, the f- first book I read in the 90s that sort of just felt incredibly cool. Very, very Scottish. Very, very cool. And out of all the Irvin Welsh's and James Kelman's, for some reason, Morvin Caller for me just really uh, moves me. And I love the sort of the character of Morvin because she's this girl working in a supermarket and I worked in a supermarket to put myself through high school. And she just sees her one opportunity to sort of escape her small life and she takes it. And she does some quite brutal things, but I love... Yeah, she does some quite brutal things, but I love the sort of the idea of when the chips are down or when you're just trying to survive, you do whatever it takes. And then of course, um, Alan Warner's writing is just so, it just has such a beat to it. It's just a pleasure to read. Um, So I love that book. And then actually uh, Young Adam's a book I read quite recently. I'd always sort of known about it, but I read it and um, the story about Joe the barge hand, it was written, I think in the fifties or sixties, or it was published in the fifties or sixties. And it's a story about Joe the barge hand that goes up and down the Edinburgh Glasgow canal he finds the body of a young girl in the water one morning and at first the reader's not let on that he knows more than he lets on Um, and as the book sort of unfolds you realize he knows who this body is but it's really just this portrait of this user or this guy that's trying to survive you know he's trying to escape jail he's trying not to take responsibility for what he's done and then it's these it's hard to call it beautiful because some of them are quite bleak little vignettes of how men and women use each other and um, it's just some incredible writing and some incredible social writing as well.
0: When you sent the list through, and I was glad—I'm always glad if M.D. mentions Agnes Owens—and I was glad as well when you, you've already mentioned in the same breath as Alistair Gray and James Kelman, because I, I often feel that she's like almost one of Scotland's best-kept secrets. I, I think she's extraordinary writer as well, and I—I I just feel sometimes I, I'm not sure why that she's she's not maybe held in the same esteem as as some of the other writers, and she should be.
1: Yeah, I, I I don't know why it is, you know, if you read people write about her, uh, and I'm thinking about again about Alistair Gray and uh, Liz Lockhead, I think, um, when they write about her, I mean, they have so much reverence for her and uh, they can see the sort of the power of her writing and it's, it's hard to find her work out in the world. One of my most prized things, actually, I found on a market stall in New York, and it's a copy of her book For the Love of Willie, which is the funniest title. It's not about that, <laughs> it's about how she's in love with this older man, and it's signed by her and like, I just treasure that. That book but she's a phenomenal writer
2: it's so hard to think i keep complaining about the same thing but it is so hard to think about a book that you would recommend to anyone because everybody is so different everybody kind of has different interests and you know, normally you would sort of tailor your recommendation based on who you have in front of you. So it, it's it's tricky to think about, OK, what is broad based enough that you think that it really you could recommend it to um, to anyone. And I do think Animal Farm is such a book because, first of all, it's a fantastic book. It's just a really amazing book. Again, it's it's kind of like this this whole anthem thing, and ran thing, where you have that you have a book that's about more than what it's about. I mean, it's so cleverly written as far as the animals and the farm, the pigs, and all the all the rest of it. But um, but also that all of that represents something else. You know, representing you know, the, the the whole Russian Revolution, and all of it is then a stark criticism of communism and this collective again this idea of this collectivism that really isn't it's not an all-for-one thing at the end of the day um, and that how how we degrade this wonderful ideal of oh we're all in it together and we'll all stick up for each other equally and we'll all just be you know so wonderful um, as a community fending for each other and sticking up for each other and in actual point of fact people don't function like that or in this case aren't like that and don't function like that. And it's just so brilliantly done, this book. I've I've read it a couple of times and I always enjoy it.
0: The other book that you would, or one of the other books you would recommend is The God of Small Things by Arundhati Roy.
2: I do love that book. I absolutely love that book. I read it when it first came out uh, somewhere in the 90s, I think it came out, like late 90s.
0: I think it was nominated, or it won the Booker Prize in 97, so...
2: OK, well, there you go. Yeah. Then then um, I read it. Then I I read it when it won the Booker Prize. And then I read it. I read it again a few times. And I just it's really um, she has such mastery of words again, really just an amazing writer. The way that she crafts her words, um, and then the story itself is just—it's incredible. It's you know talking about it's set in India and follows these two twins, these fraternal twins. Um, but the things that she observes and the way that she—the way that she then talks about that is just really—it's very delicate but strong book. I um, I would say you know this whole idea, the God of Small Things. I mean, it's talking about how all of these big things are just seemingly out of the control of these twins in India and that they sort of their only hope left is small things. And if there is a God of small things to sort of help and fix things that, that could make a difference. And I think that speaks to the experience of so many people who, you know, you oftentimes when you, you, have a, you have a situation where you're not necessarily prospering, you know, it, it can feel as if things are out of control as far as affecting big changes. Um, and then you look to the small changes. And I think I think there's it's so it's such a specific book, but I think some of these ideas are actually so universal to so many different cultures um, and so many different people um, that it just, even though it really is based in this, you know, small place in India, it feels for me as if it's a global book that really almost it, anybody could relate to.
0: You've gone for another big novel in terms of science fiction, and that's Arthur C. Clarke's
3: 2001, A Space Odyssey. Again, another uh, book that I read when I was, I think it was second year, and it was on our school reading list to do a book review, which in reflection, I mean, bless our teachers, they clearly had very, very high hopes as to to what we were going to get from this completely high concept, out of your nuts, (laughs) sci-fi epic. I I tried my best with it, but on reflection, I don't think I quite captured the, the sort of magnificence or indeed the kind of scale of what's going on in the book. But again, one of those things that one of those novels that that I returned to in my early 20s, I think it was, and ended up reading the other, I think there's four of them, and I read the whole series. It's one of those books that actually I think, as hard as it is to imagine, I actually think it's underrated as a novel because it's constantly likened with the film, with the Stanley Kubrick film. And Kubrick worked with Arthur C. Clarke uh, at the time when they were making the movie in the 60s. And of course, the film's gone on to become this sort of bastion of science fiction and movie making because it was such a kind of landmark it was a blockbuster before people knew what a blockbuster was. I've always found the book to be better. Not necessarily just that old debate, you know, that old chestnut, is the book better than the film? You know, a lot of people can always champion that to be the case. I actually think the book is a better story than the, the movie. The reason being that I think the novel is given, uh, I think Arthur C. Clarke obviously is considered one of the kind of grandfathers, the great elder statesmen of science fiction with a massive, massive back catalogue of books that range from the innocuous to the massive scale and what it means to be be a human being and stuff. But I think the nature of what the story is, well, it's exactly the same story in the movie. The format of being able to read it and get a bit more insight into the the background of, you know, where the HAL 9000 computer comes from, and it doesn't spend as much time with the visuals of passing through the monolith, the Stargate. And it almost, dare I say, it makes a bit more sense because people that are familiar with the film, the last scene is obviously of this embryo watching over the Earth. You're pretty much after the kind of three-hour sensory assault that the film is, you kind of scratch your head, but actually within the context of the book, without, well, it's a fairly major spoiler, but you've got Dave Bowman who... Who's the astronaut who's on the discovery he then passes through it's it's a it's a metaphor for human evolution and that's what these monoliths are it's an alien technology that's sent to humanity to kind of pushes on our way to the next step of evolution and that's what he becomes he becomes this sort of this almost angelic type figure who's sent back to watch over the earth and that's explained a lot better in, in the novel and the description of it's a little bit easier to read but i mean don't get me wrong i love the film the film is, is a joy and a splendor to watch and again and you take all the kind of cultural elements of it and, and how big an impact it's had on movie makers and the and movie going public since it came out in the 60s. It also features Leonard Rossiser. He has a small cameo. Whenever I'm talking about it, I always have to get that in because people forget that he wasn't just Rigsby. He's in it, right, I think he's about 20, 30 minutes in. He's a hotel guest. But yeah, it, it's a great book. It's a great novel. It's a great read. And I would always recommend it.
0: As far as the podcast is concerned, the book is always better than the film. One thing you were saying... You came to this book because it was a kind of reading choice at school. And was that, when you were at school, were you given a choice of books and then you could select something? The teacher wasn't actually selecting the book for you.
3: First, second and third year, I think it was, we were given a a list of maybe about 20 books. You had to pick one of those books and then you would do a book review on it and then you'd have to do a presentation and stuff. You know, it was was like the first term project. First year was, I picked Boy, but it had things like Animal Farm on it. A, A friend of mine who shall remain nameless to protect the guilty, he famously picked up Animal Farm because it was the smallest on the list but of course it's the smallest on the list but it's not by any way, shape or form the easiest read to get through or indeed talk about or review. He also did the same I think the next year. It may have been it, The Diary of Miss Jean Brody was on the list and again it was the smallest book on the list and he picked that. I still don't think he read them. <laughs>
0: And we're on to your third book choice, Catherine, and that's a book that you'd recommend to anyone. And the book you've chosen is This Is Not About Me by Janice Galloway.
4: Yeah, this is uh, this is absolutely superb uh, memoir written by Janice Galloway, um, who is also a novelist, a poet, and librettist. She's multi, multi-talented, but um, she's written two volumes of memoir, This Is Not About Me and making it... Is it Making It All Up? I can't remember what the second volume's called, but I've just reread the first one, This Is Not About Me. And it was as wonderful as I remembered it. The first line is, this is my family. This is my family. And anything that talks about family dynamics fascinates me. Anything about mother-daughter relationships, sibling relationships, father-daughter relationships, is all interesting to me. And Janice does it so well. So she's writing about being, well, her mother said that she thought she was the menopause. So her mother didn't realise she was giving birth to Janice until she got to the hospital. So she was brought up obviously much, much younger than her sister. And But then her sister comes back to live with the family when Janice is about four. And the sister, Cora, is incredibly dominating and domineering and is one of the best characters to read about. You would not want to live with her. You would not want to live in a one-room attic, which is where they were living at the time, but you definitely want to read about it because she's just so fascinating. So we've got the domineering sister, we've got the overworked mother, and we've got the alcoholic father, which, as you can imagine, create this combustible atmosphere in which Janice was b- being brought up so you read about this child surviving in, in, in and thriving actually in this environment and it just makes you think you know from that to being one of the best writers in the country you know it's incredible you know how people can survive and thrive despite the most difficult of beginnings.
0: Obviously you've written your own memoir but had you read memoirs before then or is it is it something you've subsequently focused on or, or read more in that genre?
4: both i i i love memoir, I think it's absolutely fascinating the fact that people are willing to share their details of certain aspects of their life with you, I just think is, it is an act of generosity, I think, and I think you know, yeah, tell me all about your life that's brilliant um so I mean toast by Nigel Slater is one of my favorite memoirs running with scissors by Augustine Burroughs. Oh, I've got so many on my shelves all behind me. I can't think of their names, but I just love memoir. And, uh, And then I wrote one. And then that made me even more fascinated by them because I was then going back and thinking, you know, well, how did they do that? Where did they start? Where did they finish? What was the particular lens that they were telling the story through? Because my memoir is told through the lens of my sister's death by suicide. And so that's what I start with. And then I go back and I look at my family and try and work out how the story came to the end that it did, my sister's story. Um, So all memoirs are looking at a life through a different lens. And um, yeah, I highly recommend memoir um, reading. I think it's so great to see how other people have survived through the most difficult circumstances. I get quite a lot of memoirs sent to me now to read uh, because I've written one and um i i run out of words actually to describe how good some of them are you can't you know you keep saying brilliant a brilliant read i'd recommend it to everybody but you have to keep coming up with different ways of saying that because there's so much good memoir being written
5: well this is one of my favourite books of all time. I think I've read this book uh, about four or five times um, and I will. I started to read it again last night and that's uh, Roddy Doyle's A Star Called Henry. It's, it's just so, it's hard to describe, but it's so beautifully written. Uh, Roddy Doyle, as we know, is, is one of the most famous uh, writers in Ireland um, and I'd put him up there beside Sean Casey and, and the rest uh, the book itself starts in the early, the late, sorry, the late 1800s. Henry Smart is the star, and uh, he's born in grinding poverty in Dublin. And, you know, Doyle was so descriptive in this, uh, you know, the the rats are, are in the house and the mother is, has absolutely nothing at all. The book opens with them sitting on a pavement in this Dublin, outside this Dublin tenement. And they're looking at the stars in the sky. And the stars in the sky that the mother's point out are the kids that she lost through childbirth that died in absolute poverty. Now, Henry's life mirrors the most dramatic and the most important point in Irish history, I think. It goes through the Revolution of 1916, then the Civil War, 1921, and then it continues through that. Now, the thing that I really like about Henry is... Henry is a survivor, but he's a chancer as well, you know, and he's got this, this doubling humour about him. He ends up in the GPO during the 1916 East Horizon. Henry's no interest in that. He's having sex with a woman uh, doing the stairs uh, while well, this is all going on. Ultimately, it's, it's a, a dramatic book, it's a sad book as well, but ultimately, Henry is used by just about everybody in his life, and he knows this. But he gets through it, he escapes that. Um, Roddy Doyle, this is the first part of a trilogy. The second part was called Oh Play Play That Pretty Thing. That's when Henry ends up going to, to New York and he works as a bouncer for Louis Armstrong. He then comes back from New York as an older man to Ireland. And ultimately, the third one, The Dead Republic, is a wonderful book as well because he gets involved in the peace treaties that came to place in the 90s in Ireland? Well, do you know, it's interesting that when, when H- I saw have you... Have
0: you read this Oh, do you not know, have? I've read all three of them. And when I read A Star Called Henry, and I, I absolutely agree with you, I think it's it's a social history, it's brilliant. I think you're there, yeah. and the, you know, the way Roddy Dog describes that poverty, the, 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 the whole city of Dublin, you know, the life that Henry leads, and he's a brilliant character. Mm -hmm. so I absolutely loved the book and I've read that two or three times I really struggled with the other two books I I, I found, and I don't know whether because I loved A Star Called Henry so much I really struggled with the second one when he was in America I
5: really I I, I absolutely toiled with The Dead Republic I, I think it's interesting you saying that Paul that I was so disappointed with the second book um, you're right, you went for this high, the first one The second one I found very difficult I never finished it But I read the third one And I was impressed with the third one Solely because, from a personal point of view I was always I had a great interest in the film The Quiet Man yeah. You know, John Ford fascinated me um, And when The Dead Republic starts It's Henry's line in the desert um, And uh, John Ford kicks him no, no, he, he doesn't. He's, he's doing a pee, doesn't he? And he accidentally <laughs> pees on him, uh, and and then it goes to the earth. So that sparked my interest a bit. Yeah. But uh, although, as I say, Roddy Royal is such a wonderful writer that you're right. The second one was, was a great disappointment. I thought, what is this? The, the third one, I just felt it was so much crammed in. Can I tell you? I don't know if it's a sad story about John
0: Ford, the quiet man, or just a sign that, we, that we're older, but maybe on The younger generation. We're having a conversation. <laughs> <at work. laughs> And somebody was mentioning John Clark, the Lisbon Lion. Uh-huh. His favourite film of all time is The Quiet Man. Uh-huh. So I, somebody didn't, hadn't heard of The Quiet Man, so I saying "This is just—it's a fantastic film. It's an incredible film. You need to watch it." John Wayne goes back to Ireland, and mm. one of the young guys said, "Is John Wayne a real person?" And we all looked, and he went, "I thought he was just a character that Clancy had played." All oh, right, <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> right, "He's not in our quiz team." No, just, no, it's very sad. <laughs> So you gave you gave me a three, and then you said three three of three of many. And the first of those was Room by Emma Donoghue.
6: I would recommend that to anyone because I actually read that as a you know because I kind of had to read it for a class book, and I literally couldn't turn the pages quick enough. You know, my my finger was just a blur. It was so exciting. But it's a really literary book. It's a really good sort of experiment that really works. It's written in the voice of a five year old child whose whole world is this little room uh, and his mother has been abducted and held prisoner there and he has been the result of this man coming to her room every night and all the strategies that the the mum has to employ to to keep the wee boy stimulated but also just to keep alive and it's it's fascinating, it's a fascinating read but also it's a kind of read, it's not a girly book it's not a boy, you know, a man's book it's a book that anyone could read and it's a book that's exciting and will definitely keep you engaged to the last page
0: is that does that ever frustrate you the fact that sometimes i don't i know it's sometimes publishing can be guilty of that of trying to pigeonhole books because i always kind of feel you're either going to enjoy a book or you're not and there's probably books that me for example as a man would have enjoyed but they're not marketed to me and vice versa yeah and you think, which i always think minded
6: yeah absolutely and then there's all sorts of tricks that the publishers get up to as well do you remember there was a book called i think it was the long narrow road to the north or something like that Really, it was a really harrowing book. It was about these people on the, the death railway and all these Australian guys and how it was just really, really harrowing, really, really horrible. But there was a kind of fleeting love story in it, very fleeting, but it was dressed up. See if you looked at the cover, it was a picture of a woman and a picture of a rose or something like that. You would think, oh, well, this is a, a romance. This is a, a book that women can read, you know? I mean, of course, anyone can read it. But yeah. really, that was, a, that was a kind of man's war book. So that's, that's how you, as I would imagine, if I was a publisher, that's what I would do. I would put little pink things <laughs> on the cover. <laughs> because it's women that read, you know? The 70 or 80% of readers are women.
0: I always remember one of the best examples my dad ever gave me in terms of just read anything is that I remember bumping into him in the train coming home from work one day and he was coming home from work and as I'm walking along the carriageway, I saw him up ahead sitting reading the Women's Weekly that he'd bought for my mum. Quite quite the thing and I thought, I didn't think at the time, I went and sat somewhere else but afterwards I thought that's quite good that he's just showing, just read what you want, read anything.
6: Yeah, that's a real man. He's not scared. It's really cute, actually. It's a lovely story.
0: I'd mentioned there that you had said there was another couple of books that you'd you'd mentioned to the recommendation. The other one, well, one of the other ones was Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell.
6: Yeah, I loved that book. I mean, I've never taught that book. I just devour anything that uh, David Mitchell produces. I've really liked his work. But Cloud Atlas was quite a big, long book and it was quite kind of hard but to stick with but I really liked the device that he used this kind of like he would start a story and he'd leave you on a kind of high point a kind of cliff edge and then he start another story and then he start another story so he started about and they were all related to, to each other one way or another so he built this kind of like half of a half of a pyramid and then he got to the top and then he told the whole story and then he went back down the other side by telling the ends of the stories that he'd begun if you know what I mean so it was a really interesting device the, the verve and the energy in the writing was tremendous all the different characters but there was a really cracking story in it that I remember and it was I think this may have been the central story the one that kind of bridged between the two halves of each story and it was about Young women who worked in a, some sort of an oriental version of McDonald's and they earned so many badges until they went to, you know, whatever word they used for it, but they would be going off to heaven. They'd work hard and get these badges and then they'd go off to heaven. But in fact, what happened was they were kind of humanoid robots and they basically just get melted down again and re, remade as new human robots sort of thing. And it kind of made me think, well, that's what happens to us. That's what happens to everybody. But they they, they had this whole idea of, uh, oh, when you get these so many stars, then you go off to this wonderful place. And this is the story we're told with religion, you know. You work your ass off all your life and then you go to heaven. And instead of which, all your your uh, component parts of your body just get recycled somewhere in the, in the world. Parts that are your body will become... I don't know, a bird or a fish or something. <laughs> I bet it will, you know, it'll we'll keep being recycled time and time again. So yeah. that's why I really yeah. loved that story for that reason.
0: Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at Read About 20, on Instagram at Read About It podcast, or you can send an email to readallaboutit at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cudahy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.